Welcome to episode 1.6 of part one, Reconciliation of the Warp and Wolf. I'm your host, Grover Elliott, and I'm going to be covering my sixth defining characteristic, I am an American. Anyone anywhere else in the world can point this out pretty quickly. Actually, many of them have picked up that I'm from Texas when I travel. I, I don't know, maybe that's a uh, J.R. Ewing effect, if I'm not dating myself too much there. Hey, it's better than being known for Jersey Shore, right? But here's a question to consider. Here at home, does being an American mean more than the fact that I'm a Texan or you're whoever you are? There's no easy answer to that question. Now, I ranked being a Texan higher than being an American on this list, but that's because I see myself as having more in common with the typical Texan than with the typical American, whatever typical means in this context. Being a Texan is a smaller group than being an American. In fact, it's a subgroup of American. You've seen those diagrams with the several circles. One is a large circle, and there's a couple of smaller ones inside that cross themselves at different points. Well, Texan is inside that largest circle, which is American. Your state is in there, too. You and I may have views in common where our state circle is going to cross each other, and our state circles may cross with Kansas, but not in the same views, not in the same place. But we're all inside that big circle, or we should be. But really, we were supposed to hold being a citizen of our own state as more important than being an American. That may sound a little crazy, but it's in our name, the United States of America. We, our various communities or our states, we weren't supposed to lose our individual identities. Like I said, I celebrate those differences. When I travel, I don't want Connecticut to be like Texas any more than I want Japan to be like Greece. The differences are what make us interesting. They're also what make us disagree, argue, fight even, from your personal relationships to geopolitical relations. But since a state is a smaller subgroup of being an American, I'm likely to share more similarities with my fellow Texans than to Americans as a whole. And to any Canadian or Mexican brothers and sisters that might be listening, or for that matter, those in South America or any of the colonial lands nearby, when I say American, I mean the United States of America. Yeah, there's a touch of U.S. arrogance there, but I truly mean no disrespect. In fact, being a writer that's really picky about language, I forever pointed out that the word America labels two entire continents. But we as U.S. citizens are known the world over as Americans, for better or for worse, right or wrong. And I'm not here to split hairs or argue semantics. That's a lie. I will absolutely argue semantics, and you'll hear me do it so. But right now, when I say American, I'm referring to citizens of the United States. No offense meant, and I hope none taken. But back to the United States. What does it mean to be an American. Like most countries, it means being part of a community. But what community? We're a little different than most, or, or at least what most countries have been in the past, in that we are a melting pot. The United States has welcomed people into her bosom from all walks of life and all corners of the world. People with different religions and, and looks and social practices. Now, that has a tendency to mark separate groups, but our rights should bring us together as a single group of individuals, free to be who they choose to be, the big circle of America. I, I know that the common perception today is that we're this white patriarchal country, and we are greatly Caucasian, but I'll bet that if you look around your community, you'll see a broad variety of people. It's easier to recognize this if you've traveled to other countries where people look very much alike, especially ethnically. I mean that people in other countries all look the same. And, and no, not in the all foreigners look alike sense. I'm just saying that most countries do not enjoy the, the broad diversity that we do. I mentioned we're Caucasian, 
According to the U.S. Census Bureau estimates, 76% of the population sees itself as quote-unquote white. But that includes folks who are Hispanic or Latino. Take them out of the mix, and we're down to 60% white. How many countries do you know of where their base population, the, the ethnicity that they're known for, is just 60%? That's not common. Though demographics are changing worldwide with you know, our global economy and, and how much people move, Hispanics make up about 19% in the U.S., and blacks just about 13.5%. Asians come in at 6%, and Native Americans at 1.3%. And I'm not sure that self-identity is even included in those statistics. Take Rachel Dolezal, Elizabeth Warren, Hillary Baldwin, and their ilk out of the white column, and the numbers might change even more. Now, I'm joking there, I'm I'm an A is A type of guy, the law of identity. A thing has a specific nature. So I don't go in for this self-identity delusion that is so popular right now. You either are something or you are not. Of course, course, most of the uh, modern confusion is over gender, of all things, but race can be a little more complicated than that. Those counted as two or more races combined make up 3% of our population. I guess the easy way to see that is is someone with a black parent and a white parent. It seems kind of strange to keep up with race these days, outside of the human race. But color is an especially arbitrary way to differentiate today's population. I mean, you may have a preference of red Hellcat Dodge Chargers over blue ones, but there's no argument over them both being Hellcat Dodge Chargers or being able to park next to one another, or that you'd turn one down because of color. When it comes to race in this country, the lines are already blurred and blurring more every day. Race mixing in in a family isn't just about parents, but can go back for generations. And if it's just a matter of skin color and facial physiology, we're all going to end up olive-skinned with a mixture of Caucasian and Negroid and in my case, Neanderthal features, and averaging out of everyone. How's that going to look? I don't know, and I don't really care. Though I do think it's more interesting when people look different than one another. Today, many black celebrities and non-celebrities straighten their hair to make it look more like Caucasian hair. In the 70s, it was just the opposite. And that's odd to me. Mostly because I cut off all of my hair and I don't want to have to spend time messing with it. But we have for a long time actively tried to close the physical appearance gap. Just look at the Kardashians. It's been claimed that only light-skinned blacks make it in Hollywood. That may be true for women. I mean, Hollywood is the most misogynistic and racist community and industry in the nation, bar none. Though I'm not sure the evidence shows it's really still true for women. Viola Davis just became an egot, and I don't think she's particularly light-skinned, just incredibly talented. But it especially doesn't hold water for men. Speaking of men, when is the last time you saw an Irish bodybuilder? I'm not picking on a nationality here. I'm just pointing out that dark skin shows off muscle contour so much better. No spray tan company is going to go out of business as long as there are white bodybuilders and professional wrestlers. The point is that social mores, marriage licenses, and Jim Crow laws did a lot in the past to keep the races separated in, in this country. But in my lifetime, and that's half a century, folks, that's, that's the last 20% of this country's existence and counting. In my lifetime, we've been trying to mimic one another through fashion, hairstyles, music, and the like, and intermarrying. This is a horrible sounding word. Just replace that with getting married across racial lines. We're drawing closer, no matter what our political leaders want us to believe, the averaging out. I see headlines calling younger celebrities black or white or Latino, and I think, really? I can't tell. Futuristic dystopian novels draw a rather bland image of this. Hairless drones dressed in identical jumpsuits with an assigned number for identification. 
which come to think of it, pretty much describes every pop singer over the last 10 years. <laughs> Maybe that's why fashion designers come up with all that insane garbage you see on the runways, you know, boxes and bows and foam and sticks coming out of outfits, something to mix it all up once, well, once we're all mixed up, genetically speaking. You know, let me just say, I'm not a fan of all that eye-stepping experimental fashion silliness. But the U.S. auto industry really should consider hiring those fashion designers to come up with some new automotive designs. I mean, every car, truck, and SUV on the road today looks the same. Looks the same as they did 15, 20 years ago. Take the Fashion Week people and drop them in the middle of Detroit for a year or two. See what comes of it. All right, back to race in America. Physically... We're getting closer to one another, and the lines of demarcation are going to continue to blur. But what about socially? We've already talked about mixed-race couples and what you see around your community, the wide range of demographics, depending on where you live. But socially, how we see ourselves and how we interact with one another. Socially, we're clearly moving further apart, at least in popular perception. And perception Listen, this is very important. Socially speaking, perception is reality. We're splitting apart as a people, as countrymen. And I believe this split is intentional, orchestrated. Divided we fall, right? You see, a united people, a group of one, controls its own destiny. And if it is in control... Where is there room for someone to be in power? Well, there isn't. If we are a people of destiny, if we see ourselves as fulfilling the promise of, of freedom presented to the world on this continent two centuries ago, then we are in control of ourselves with no elite class amassing wealth and, and power and influence and, and command over us. But that's exactly what's happening. But how? Now, that's a, that's a long and involved answer, but part of it does belong here in this piece about being an American. The danger presented by a united populace is not lost on that class of people who see themselves as somehow better or, or more deserving than the rest of us. I'm not talking about people who work hard and improve their station in life. That, that's the grandest of all human accomplishments, and it's not limited to monetary improvement. I'm talking about the permanent bureaucrat politician, the, the tick that sucks and, and fattens on the blood source of this country, American ingenuity and hard work. You know who these are. Both political parties are fat with them. These old, crooked, out-of-touch, permanent fixtures. Most of them are in Congress, but, but many of them are burrowed into the bowels of Washington like some kind of red tape worm. These are people who have never worked a non-government job in their lives, who buy and sell stock based upon information that they get on the inside from their privileged positions. Yeah, inside insider trading. That, that's illegal, but they do it. These rats who, who get lucrative government contracts for their friends and families, an act that would land all of us in prison, yet they do it and get away with it. The celebrity politician whose ghost-written autobiography is purchased by the truckload by foreign powers who do it just to gain favor. Have you ever wondered how those poorly written, uninteresting books become international bestsellers? Yet you can't find anybody outside of a few talking heads on television who actually read the things? It's because the copies that made them bestsellers, that made that politician a multimillionaire, those copies are sitting in boxes in a warehouse in Saudi Arabia or some other U.S. dependent regime paid for with money meant to influence U.S. foreign policy. And boy, does it work. When we lay off workers in West Texas but continue to import oil from the Middle East, your tank of gas goes towards a, a sultan purchasing copies of unread memoirs to keep the machine functioning. At your cost. All right, I didn't mean to go off on a diatribe about scumbag Washingtonians, but it's hard not to. 
The point is that these people know what a threat to their comfy situation a united American populace would be. So they work hard at making sure we are divided. How? Fomenting envy and strife amongst the economic classes and amongst the races. It's been historically easy to get the average Joe to detest the rich. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to convince a man with no indoor plumbing to resent the yacht owner. But as our standard of living as a whole continues to rise further above most of the rest of the world, and as the rich are no longer just the old money and insiders, but they're musicians, athletes, social media influencers, OnlyFans stars, people seemingly like the rest of us. It becomes trickier to use wealth as a hot point outside of corporate shaming. But never underestimate the, the ability of the political class to invent strife in order to separate us. Look, if you're a politician living high on the public hog and you fear the normals, the average Joes, us, working our way up into your neighborhood, how do you stop us? I mean, short of passing a law, putting a cap on earnings or success, well, you make them proud to not be one of you. How on earth do you take a people who are guaranteed unalienable rights under God, who hold absolute personal freedom in their hands, who together as a people have built the strongest, grandest, richest empire in the history of mankind? How do you convince them that they do not want to better themselves, their, their station in life? Impossible, you say? <laughs> Unthinkable? Ha! Easy and done. Just create a little tension. Build a little strife. Create perceived sides for one to be on, to choose, to make that a rational choice. Pick a side right now. And let entertainment and the media do the rest. Push movies and shows and songs that pit one group against another or that create some new imaginary group to which people can aspire to belong. And for the ones that aren't sucked into all of that, tell them what they can and can't say in those movies and songs so that it becomes an us-against-the-government battle. Why should I care about Twisted Sister? Well, because lead singer Dee Snyder surprised us all when he, he so eloquently battled Al Gore and his decency labels in Washington back in 1985. A little background here, in case you weren't alive during what was arguably one of the top six or seven decades of the 20th century. In 1983, some Washington-based women created the Parents Music Resource Center, the PMRC, with the stated goal of warning parents about harmful lyrics and music. It sounds reasonable, like a rating system for music, but of course, rarely should anything out of D.C. be considered reasonable. This stunt created a huge backlash with musicians crying censorship and government overreach. It didn't help that the leaders of the PMRC were not particularly likable characters, whereas the opposition was already worshipped by kids and, in some cases, their parents. Artists that made the list included Prince, Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, ACDC and Cindy Lauper, to name a few. One of these is not like the other. Well, why should it even have come down to that? Why should Al and Tipper Gore even care what was on a Twisted Sister album, an album they'd likely never even hear? I'm not sure that they did. But we all had sides to take. Parents, churches, kids, politicians, the media, all fighting one another. But who won? Well, interestingly, two groups won. First, those musicians sold even more albums, and the PMRC pushed them and others to pursue even raunchier lyrics. And the second, the politicians won. They kept us infighting once again. By the way, Twisted Sister made the list for inciting violence. And the song, We're Not Gonna Take It. That's... <laughs> Kind of a you know, silly anthem appealing to powerless teenagers. And it's based on the tune to Oh Come All Ye Faithful. Heavy stuff, man. And even though the PMRC 
told us that it was a, a threat to American decency and safety back in the 80s when it was being played on all the radio stations. In the past 10 years, various politicians have been using and abusing the same song on their campaign trails. And to be fair, the PMRC was made up of people from both major political parties in this country, not just Democrats like Alan Tipper. So its use in campaigns wasn't even throwing a finger at the PMRC. Isn't it all just kind of confusing? Why create such turmoil over something only to use it 30 years later? I mean, the most basic appreciation of irony would at the very least force you to use... I don't know, Fight for Your Right to Party by the BC Boys? Or better yet, U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. I think that's one that we could all play every election cycle and enjoy. But the PMRC did its job. It drove wedges. And the powers that be are all about wedges. There are three social groups that have been created in the last 30 years that never existed before in this country. That's redneck culture, thug culture, and whatever the hell you call hipster know-it-all anti-Karens that believe it's their prerogative to tell every other individual how they're supposed to live from the car they drive to the pet they own to the device they use to cook with. Oh, I, I know you think these things existed before, but they didn't. Not like today. Rednecks? Redneck was a term for someone who worked or, or lived on a farm or did hard labor outside. Their necks were sunburned, thus redneck. This wasn't a source of pride. In fact, the term was generally derisive in nature. Not that rednecks were bad people. It was just a lifestyle that somehow survived the Industrial Revolution. And the term was generally applied to poorer Southerners with less formal education. This wasn't necessarily bad, but it was a station in life that one strove to climb out of. Not a goal, but today's redneck is generally a kid whose family has worked and climbed out of that particular income bracket. So that the modern redneck has to drive his lifted, unscratched truck with the chrome wheels down to the Goodwill store to buy some pre-worn overalls so he looks legitimate while he blares some hipster pop country song on his $1,500 stereo system while drinking a White Claw. I'm not hiring you. Why? Yes, it's because you don't own a shirt with sleeves. Look, sleeves aren't any more expensive than soap. Wash and clothe yourself. But mainly, it's because you're a complete poser. You willingly throw away everything that's been done before you to help you get a better start, and you wear your poor judgment like a badge of honor. And by the way, the, the chubby-bearded real man singer you so fervently follow Fervently means enthusiastically. He's friends with Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus and the like. <laughs> and, and don't laugh at that, thugs. You're the other side of the same coin. Unless you think I'm singling out blacks here, I'm not. There are black rednecks just like there are white thugs. But we're speaking generally here. Remember, never judge an individual on generalities. They have no meaning at the individual level generalities are for broader discussions only now thugs used to be mafioso in this country back back in the 30s only scumbags wanted to be one of them and admiration for them was born of nothing but fear but today the thug lifestyle the, the pants hanging off your rear ends and the hoodies and like the rednecks the intentional deconstruction of the english language in an attempt to fit in with some and not be understood by most. The filthy, booming music that's used as an auditory shotgun blast against the sensibilities of anyone within a 50-yard radius of your pathetic self-absorption. This lifestyle has permeated nearly every corner of our society. And it's a sick joke. A sick joke played on the adherence of that particular image. You want some proof? Look at the civil rights leaders that fought so hard to end Jim Crow laws and other social discriminations and compare them to the modern so-called leaders who foment hate and violence and tell you to take pride in an image that never existed, as if that is your heritage. 
The former group is now rolling in their graves. The latter group, the gangster rappers, <laughs> they're millionaires. They're on TV cooking with Martha Stewart. While they sold you the image of being a cop killer, they're on television making millions playing cops. The destruction of the English language, their language of the streets. Not only will you not hear in old recordings from yesteryear, you won't hear it from these people when they're out cashing their checks. But they sell you the image as if it should be the, the sole source of your pride. What has that image actually done for you? Has it helped you? Has it? At all? It's helped them. They've joined the very elite groups that want to keep you out. You, I'm not hiring you. Not because you're black or because you're white and like to listen to rap music. It's because you're wearing the uniform of a killer, a thug, a terrorist. For a generation, we've been told that the sagging pants and the hoodie represent angry power and rage. That the person so adorned is, is armed and ready to kill for any number of reasons. Most of them not involving self-defense. Out of fear? Fear of what? Fear of others? Kill to protect your turf from someone you don't like walking into your neighborhood? Yeah, movies, songs, and police reports have told us that for 25 years. Look, would you hire me if I walked in wearing a white sheet and hood? Yeah, those people killed for most of the same reasons. Of course you wouldn't. The reality is that we don't hate one another, you and me. Walk into your local Walmart or movie theater or car lot and tell me how many times you get into a racial confrontation. If it's more than just a handful of times in your life, you may actually be the source of the conflict. I see film clips on the internet of, of some black guy saying horrible things to a white guy or a white guy yelling epithets at a black girl. And then a heroic battle ensues, followed by viewer comment after comment about how that wouldn't happen around me, or they should know their place, or that girl deserved that for saying such and such. All anonymous garbage caused by a, by a made-up filmed scenario that I've never seen happen in half a century in this country. It's reminiscent of Birth of a Nation, very popular in its day with celebrities and politicians. Hey, a common theme there. Now, I'm not obtuse enough to pretend like there's no one in this country that hates someone else just because of the color of their skin. But you show me all these cases of two sober people randomly hurling racial epithets at one another. Here's the point. The powers that be have created these nouveau rednecks and thugs as a way to keep we so-called undesirables out of their neighborhoods. Groups with this misdirected pride of being unacceptable in modern society, of, of being unhirable, what my mother so aptly refers to as reverse elitism, and it's working oh so well. They keep the boots on their own heads, holding themselves down. Rednecks and thugs alike. Back to the language barrier. Rednecks that take pride in speaking horribly. Ain't nothing but my southern heritage. No, it isn't. And I can speak redneck. I just choose not to. We ain't got no class. That was an actual quote. I heard it from the stands at a girls softball game. A man was trying to restrain his rather outspoken wife, who so replied... This backward, lazy-tongued, lipless, tenseless dialect is not one of historical significance in the South. If you don't want to read a book or bother to speak with some old-timers, go watch the Andy Griffith Show. You can speak colloquially without sounding like a moron. And that gangsta speak? It was called ebonics at one time in an attempt to give it legitimacy. The arguments range from... Blacks pulling from their African heritage to claims that, get this, the black mouth structure could not form certain words the way that whites could. And that came from black elitist educators. <laughs> Racist claims used to try to justify differences caused by, well, racism. Blacks and whites are intelligent enough and physically able to speak correctly 
and enunciate clearly in any language. Can we accept that? If you disagree, tell me why you won't hear a black person speaking that way in England or Nigeria or Jamaica or anywhere else. Now, for those who claim redneck or gangsta speak as part of your heritage, show me old documentation of this. The further one goes back in southern dialect, the closer you get to British. Reckon? That ain't country. That's from England. If you want some African heritage, there are already plenty of words we use that actually did come from Africa. Jazz, yam, okra, goober, mojo. Actually, English takes words from every other language. English is put together so it's easy to not only absorb foreign words, but to create new words. And what do words represent? Things, actions, and concepts. The English language is a big part of why the English-speaking world has advanced so far so quickly. I'm not trying to take away from the Chinese or Egyptians or Persians for their historical contributions to science and, and technology. But have you ever marveled at a foreign language broadcast that includes words like internet interspersed in and other high-tech terms, and they're always in English? It's because where other languages are dying, English expands. Language is how we share ideas, concepts, abstract thoughts. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every time if, if we can share the concept with someone else through language. Likewise with fire or making swords or raising crops. But at some point, old dead languages run out of words, and therefore they run out of concepts. Now you hear languages that say, oh, we only have uh, one word for love, but it has 50 different meanings. Like that's some kind of romantic perfection. The reality is it's a limited way of expressing exactly what you're talking about. If we have 50 different ways to say love, then we can explain whether we're talking about brotherly love or romantic love or familial love. <laughs> we get much more descriptive and specific. Does your chosen so-called dialect express limited concepts? Does it limit your self-expression? Does it cripple your ability to share thoughts? English pops up and prostitutes itself around so that it can take any new word or, or fit pieces of other words together to make a new one. Sorry, German speakers, cramming an entire sentence into one unpronounceable word doesn't count. If you have to take a breath in the middle of saying it, it's no longer a word, it's a story. <laughs> but, but English has room for as many new words as you can imagine. And that means that it can handle an infinite number of new concepts. This isn't saying English speakers are smarter. It's saying English makes it possible for people to exchange more ideas. When you choose to diminish this with gangsta speak or redneck yapping, you are limiting the number of concepts you can share and absorb. Think about that seriously for a moment. A number of you are nodding your heads condescendingly right now. You know what I'm talking about, and you agree with me. But just because you agree with me doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with you. I'm speaking now to you hipsters. I'll just say this. America used to be a country where people minded their own business, telling me what I should or shouldn't do, let alone what I can or can't do. As a law-abiding citizen, that would have resulted in a sock in the nose in better times. Today, much of society kowtows for some reason, for now. But you're being used too. The powers that be, they don't want you in their neighborhoods either. You're busybodies and a royal pain in the neck, though you are useful to their ends. They've convinced you that your value to society has nothing to do with actual contribution or, or improvement or judgment. Your value is directly related to your highest education level. That's it. If you went to a lot of school, then you're somehow better than everybody else and no more. Rational and critical thought? Those don't matter. Original creative drive? Pointless. Neither is even being taught in schools at any level. 
All that matters is how many letters you have behind your name, how many years you spent being spoon-fed in the university system, and most importantly, how much student debt you have that can be forgiven in exchange for your vote. That $10,000 of debt they want to transfer to other taxpayers? Ask yourself in 10 years how much it actually helped improve your life. Was it worth it, selling your vote? But your busybodiness, your can-do-nothing-but-know-it-all spirit, it can be harnessed successfully to build more strife in other groups. You can be used to get rednecks to hate better fuel mileage or, or hybrid vehicles, to convince blacks that they should hate Starbucks and, and Aunt Jemima, for that matter, to hate every successful black in history. The recent great whitewashing of America, that was your achievement, do-gooders. The powers that be can use you to force people to give up gas appliances, internal combustion engines, cows, paper products, plastic products, lights, anything. That is to say, anything except what they themselves use. Have you ever noticed that none of the leaders that support you actually follow those same rules? They never will. You're just tools to them. And really, most of those things never actually change anyway. Reducing so-called uh, greenhouse gases? How come you can buy carbon credits from companies owned by, oops, here's this name again, Al Gore? If I were determined to stamp out, I don't know, pedophilia, would you expect me to set up a, and, and sell a system of pedo credits? Would that be acceptable? Of course not. So ask yourself, why are there carbon credits if we are all, yet again, on the brink of self-annihilation? Somebody's making a killing with this, and it ain't the ones holding the protest signs with the pithy slogans. There you go, my redneck friends. I threw an ain't in there for you. Okay, if I haven't alienated everyone listening yet, let me get back on topic. I'm an American, and that means I'm part of a community. But what community? I mean, I've just suggested groups are wrong, right? <laughs> no. It's okay to be a part of a group. We all need to be part of a group. Groups provide us security and friendships. You can belong to any group you like. It's a free country, mostly. I was a Star Wars fan, and that put me into a group. Then they made a fourth movie, and it turns out I'm just a Star Wars trilogy fan. But that's okay. Being a Star Wars fan doesn't exclude me from other groups. I can still respect the Force and live long and prosper, right, Treggies? Okay, maybe it excludes me from some groups. I like heavy metal, but not mosh pits. That's okay. They allow me to pay more to have a seat. I like golf. That puts me in one of three subgroups of golfers. Professional. All in one. Cussing and drinking. Four. Or John Daly, yeah, give me a fifth. You can be in numerous groups. As I said, I like heavy metal, but I also like chamber or so-called classical music. I like traditional country. I like the blues. Yeah, it's the British invasion, but I'm also talking about Mississippi John Hurt, Lightning Hopkins, Paul Butterfield. I love Americana like Robert Earl Keane Jr., jazz like Dave Brubeck, and I like whatever the hell Primus is. I like the Beastie Boys and LL Cool J. I think James Todd Smith is a real positive guy, even though he's got some not-so-positive songs. And, and I'm not saying you can't enjoy listening to a hard rap song. Just don't shape your life around it. I like John Wayne movies, but I don't go walking around town in a red vest talking about shooting people. I like Cyndi Lauper and, yes, the occasional Twisted Sister song. Ballet, opera, and Clint Eastwood movies, except for the ones about the bridge. And I like everything that Bruce Campbell's ever done, baby. I like hunting and eating meat and raising vegetables and eating them, and I believe we should treat animals humanely and, and protect our natural habitats. I like some things that Republicans support, and I like some things that Democrats support. In short, I'm an individual, an individual that, that's free to be a part of any group I want, as long as it doesn't go against my belief in personal freedom, mine and everyone's around me. I do tend to pick groups that expand my mind and experiences and view of life. I, I try to avoid those that separate me from others. 
Does your group exclude you from other groups, from society in general? Does it fall inside that larger American circle or push you outside of it? If it does, maybe you need to reevaluate the purpose of that group and its value to you and reflection of who you really are. Does that get us closer to understanding what it means to be an American? Well, I think that it does. A nation is nothing more than a collection of ideas. But what about borders and natural resources and people and national treasures? You can find any of those things anywhere else in the world. There's nothing truly unique there. It's been suggested that the U.S. owes its success to the abundant natural resources at our fingertips. Hogwash. America is successful because of ideas. Specifically, the ideas that gave birth to the the laws and ideals that allowed man to live freely and pursue his own accomplishments. We have oil, but we don't have automobiles everywhere because of it. We found a use for the oil. Many uses. If it was just because oil was present, well, how come people aren't clamoring to get into Saudi Arabia? The fact is that Saudi Arabia exists today solely because Western policies make it possible. If our economic and military policies collapsed, so would the Saudi kingdom, and quickly. That entire region around them is working hard to make itself something more than just a source of oil so that its leaders can stay in power. They know the score from fantastical city planning to golf tournaments to art collections. They know the source of their power is diminishing. The move away from petroleum at a consumer level will break them. So they're reinvesting that wealth while it still exists. China holds most of the rare earth materials needed for the production of batteries currently. But the technological advances come from the West and will eventually replace those materials that China has a monopoly on. And don't think I'm insulting the Chinese. Take a look at the names behind that American research. There aren't that many Joneses and Smiths. They're Chinese names. Just like so many of the names behind our weapons technology of World War II were German. We are a land of abundant resources, to be sure. From oil and coal to great intellectual prowess, born here or enticed to come here. So why should our leadership want to take those things away from us? Why dumb down educational standards? Well, because they don't need them to stay in power. In fact, a better educated populace is a threat to their power. Think of how difficult it is for students to learn and master English, a language full of foreign terms and irregular verbs. Now they're taking rules of gender away from children. I consider myself to be fairly intelligent and a lover of language. But I find it extremely taxing just to read a Wikipedia or IMDb article today with a random application of pronouns. How do you think your first grader is faring? But that's the whole point. We all would find it ridiculous to try to pretend there is no such thing as male and female, no difference between men and women. And not because of some social construct, but because of reality, nature, and the law of identity. But if you take away the language, the words from children, you remove the concept. How are children going to fully understand and appreciate the difference between men and women when they no longer have the words to express it? The invention of the electric light changed productivity of not only this country, but the entire world. With it, we we no longer had to retire daily with the sun to conserve lamp oil. We could study at night, improving ourselves and our station in life. Uh, the, The factory could stay open for three shifts at a time, creating more products. But now, they want to take a light away from us, or dim it down to the point I can't even read the Gideon Bible in a hotel room. You and I are shunned for driving to work. And truckers, especially owner-operators and small carriers, they're, they're crippled in delivering products and raw materials. While sanctimonious billionaires pollute more than entire neighborhoods during their worldwide jaunts to denigrate us publicly for our automobiles. All while the uh, foreign countries that benefit them and 
Therefore, they lobby for, spew garbage into the atmosphere, and get a free pass. Do yourself a favor and read in detail the particulars of these so-called environmental treaties. You might be surprised to discover that they're nothing more than poorly disguised wealth redistribution plans from your tax dollars directly to countries that manufacture the products that made those people billionaires in the first place. Conflict of interest? (laughs) Wholly redefined. We'll get into that in more detail later. The ideas and ideals behind this country are what allow men and women to be creative and successful and masters of their own destinies, if they so choose. It was designed to be a level playing field by the rule of law. You know the importance of this from the schoolyard. When you played a pickup game with the other kids, what was the first thing you did? You established the common rules. Otherwise, little Johnny would run out of bounds and around that car to try to score and then throw the ball over the fence so no one else could. You established rules so as the biggest kid couldn't just plow through everyone without having to dribble the ball. Or Susie couldn't just kick a defender in the crotch and run for a touchdown. Or the, or the, <laughs> the Quimby twins couldn't tell each other the answers in that weird made-up language they had. Playing by the same rules leveled the playing field. It didn't guarantee everyone would run the same speed or hit the same distance or remember the same amount of information. It just made sure we all had the same chance. The intent was to make sure the winners and losers weren't decided before the game even began, which is why this country was built upon the rule of law instead of upon the, the, the whims of the rich and powerful. The basics are still there, but we are losing it to those who circumvent the system, aided by our own apathy and ignorance. They keep us fighting one another so they can get away with whatever they want. Are you chasing your destiny, or are you allowing it to be defined by those who don't have your best interests at heart? Here's the problem with ideas. They can change quickly, and with little notice and and bringing no attention to the change if allowed, and not for the better. A stone is a stone. It can be chiseled away until it no longer exists, or or its shape can be altered so that it no longer looks the same. But it's hard to pull off without someone noticing, and even after the change, its essence as stone is still there. But concepts are abstract. Ideas and ideals are much more malleable. They can be reduced or added to, bent and twisted, convoluted, simplified, eradicated, and resurrected quickly and with no fanfare. They can be used as a a tool of freedom or a weapon of war, a a feather for flight or a, a shackle for enslavement. Put them into closed chambers far away, somewhere like, I don't know, Washington, D.C., And they can be transformed, perverted, or eradicated in the dark of night very quickly. Back in 2008, we saw our government decide who would be shut down and which businesses would be kept open in the name of too big to fail. And when you track which banks and which automobile dealerships survived and which were shut down, you shouldn't be surprised to discover toward whom the rules were slanted. It happened again in 2020. Some grocers were crushed while others boomed. Some sellers of goods were destroyed, shut down, while others, like Amazon, became monoliths. All because the government decided who could stay open and who would be shuttered. All in the name of public health and safety. Most of which we've now been told was incorrect. Once the essence of the concept of freedom has been changed, it may be impossible to take it back to its original form. And there is no replacement, so it has to be guarded carefully. Those ideas, ideals of unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's what it means to me to be an American. These ideals are are what allow each of us the opportunity to improve our stations in life, to climb as high as we are willing and capable of climbing, to become our our best selves, enjoying our best lives. 
Those ideals must be guarded diligently by us, we the people. No one else is going to do it for us. In fact, there are those that want those ideals reserved only for themselves. So what does it mean to be an American? For me, it means fortunate, lucky even. No matter your opinion of the current state of this country, we are all fortunate to be here. This country has been and still is the freest land the world has ever seen, period. No argument there because there isn't a viable one. We'll cover the details at a later date, but facts is facts, as the great philosopher Yogi Berra may very well have said. Now, why do I say I'm lucky? Simply because I had nothing to do with it. I was fortunate enough to be born here. So were my parents and their parents and on back several hundred years. In fact, they were born here before it was a a here. That fact doesn't give me extra credit. If anything, since I've often taken being an American for granted, the fact that my ancestors settled here long before it was a land of equal opportunity is probably a debit on my account rather than a credit. I owe much to them. I owe everything that I am and everything that I'm yet to become to them. They made it possible. I owe my gratitude to so many who sacrifice for what this country stood for and has become. From, from George Washington, who fought for our independence and, and wisely refused to be named a king, to Martin Luther King Jr., who spoke about people being judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And, and don't allow people to convince you that I'm appropriating another race's legacy. First of all, my father served guard duty during one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, and he told me it was incredible that he never heard the man utter a word that wasn't truth. Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking to and for all of us, especially in this time of renewed race baiting. Truth is truth. It has no color, and time doesn't change it. Only man can try to deny it. And we must stand guard against denial of truth. If you're a legal immigrant enjoying the rights afforded citizens of this great nation, you know all too well exactly what I'm talking about. You overcame any number of hardships and difficulties to earn what I've enjoyed as a birthright. You may be Irish or Italian or Chinese or Mexican or Nigerian or Iranian by birth, but you have chosen and worked hard to be an American. You hold my deepest respect. You embody what we all should be. See, I warned you that your opinion may waver on me one way or the other repeatedly. That's okay. We're not here to constantly agree, but to make each other think. You see, our country isn't about us and them. It's about we, whoever we may be, all of us. The land of the free, free to be who we want to be. The 50 states, each with its own identity and economy and way of life, living under a single banner of, of freedom and accomplishment. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. We'll get into American details later, but let's turn our attention to old glory for a moment. The red, white, and blue. This is the banner that represents our nation. It represents our values, those principles we hold dear. With all deference to the Union Jack of England, let's explore the symbolic meaning of the great stars and stripes. I know of no national flag that is held in such high esteem or that is burned in protest more often. The colors, red, white, and blue. Red represents our fighting spirit, past, present, and future our willingness to fight and sacrifice for the ideals to which we are so committed. Blue symbolizes justice for all, and our commitment to stay vigilant against foes, foreign and domestic, who might try to pervert or circumvent that principle of equal justice under the law. And white represents our purity, our independence from other nations, our commitment to stay true to our American ideals. The 13 red and white stripes represent the original 13 colonies that gained their independence from Great Britain. Can you name them? All northern states, right? Or if you're a Yankee, which we all are, just ask a British friend, 
the true American states. Can you name them? Know your history. New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, Rhode Island Providence Plantation, Massachusetts Bay, oh, and Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Hmm, which ones are the true American states? All of them. All 50 states. Do you ever really think about the purpose of a banner, of a flag? Why do we have them? They've been used for many things throughout the history of human beings. Human beings, think about that. No other creature uses a flag. Oh, there are animals that communicate with one another. They warn each other of external threats or even internal threats. And there are animals that live in communities, herds, packs, flocks, even cities like the prairie dog. They coordinate and even cooperate like ants. But the flag, the flag is reserved for the human being. Why? Because flags represent ideas, ideals. Flags are banners under which we all come together to celebrate or defend a certain set of values. They've been used to rally the troops on land and at sea. They've been planted on mountaintops, continents, even the moon. But why? One can just say bragging rights, and maybe that's true. But it also says, we believed, we acted, we made it. We pledge allegiance to flags. Many of us do anyway. Some choose not to, and that's okay. But let's get a clear understanding of what pledging allegiance really means. Now, you may argue that the U.S. pledge is inherently un-American. But what exactly are you opposing? You may have religious interpretation, and as I said, that's fine, but is there another reason? Is it because it's ignorant to pledge allegiance to a country that relies upon dissension in order to assure freedom? Or perhaps you've heard the argument that the Pledge of Allegiance is hypocritical, that not all people were free when it was written, which, by the way, isn't true because the first iteration was written in 1885, long after slavery was legally abolished. Although if your ancestors were Irish or Chinese or other nationalities, they may still have been slaves. Regardless, I would argue that principles, worthy ones, transcend a point in time. As we all know, at the time of the founding of our country, not all men, mankind, were free. Some were slaves. Some didn't have the right to vote. Some didn't have the right to own land. Women got short end of the stick early in our history, as did many others. And we'll get into the injustice of slavery another time, but for now it's important to recognize the fact that slavery was a condition of this land, not a principle. It was not a value held by all Americans. In fact, it was always a minority that even owned slaves. It's estimated that in the South, less than 10% of the population owned slaves. Most people were sharecroppers or even more destitute. Furthermore, this country ended legal slavery. Ended it. Some claim that wiping out the Native Americans for our own development of the land was wrong. Taking land from indigenous people, and, and that concept of indigenous is even up for debate. Indigenous when? Taking land from indigenous people, that neither started nor ended here. But what was started here was truly unique in world history. The rights for men, individuals, to live freely, to be who they choose to be, and to have the opportunity to come and go and become what they want. It took some time, but today all blacks and women and Native Americans are free. In fact, every one of them that is alive was born free. That's the ideal under which I was lucky enough to be born. And I'm proud and eternally thankful to have been assured the freedom to pledge allegiance to that ideal. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, America, from a very grateful son. But it doesn't end there, or shouldn't. Those ideals can be twisted, abused, perverted, and erased if 
we don't stand guard over them. The ideals of freedom did not result in you having a tough life or an unfair go of it. Those who would deny personal freedom are responsible. And those are the very ones leading the charge to erase the words, the concepts, those ideas and ideals. To all those who fought and died on the battlefields of American freedom, from Lexington and Concord to Greensboro and Birmingham, we owe a never-ending debt of gratitude and honor. And it is our obligation to make sure these ideas and ideals continue to be taught and honored to the American children who follow us. We are the stalwarts of freedom, not Congress, not the White House, not the Supreme Court, us, we the people, lest we never forget. Stick around for the next segment as I explore what I've done with that precious gift of freedom.